two weeks ago, I had the privilege of, of hosting Hei Wu, who is a 78-year-old uh, woman who my boys have affectionately called Mrs. Yoda um, due to her diminutive size, but her energy, her enthusiasm, her humor, and her quirky ways. Um, Hei Wu is about this height, so I don't know, is that about like four foot three? And my, and my, my middle son, Jude, he's six foot four, so she would come and hug him and be hugging around his kind of midriff and go, oh, you're so big. Um, and words that fact, she speaks very little English, but is just this incredible woman. And Hei is from North Korea, and she endured five years being in prison camps and practicing her faith in a prison camp where it is illegal to follow Jesus, illegal to possess a Bible, and you can be killed for your faith. And she learned how to share her faith um, in the midst of that context and saw people come to faith and even established a, a church with about five women who came to faith. But the only place they could meet to church wasn't like this. I'm sure you have your grumblings about all the setup, being in a school and all that stuff. Um, but for her and those five women, the only place they could meet for church was the toilets. Um, and they are not the toilets that you've got here or at home with your nice kind of, you know, soap dispensers. Uh, the toilets have an open kind of sewage running through them. Rats are running around in there. And the stench is so hard in the loos that the guards don't go in there, which makes it the perfect place to meet as church because it's a place of secrecy. North Korea is a place where 80,000 Christians are in prison for their faith. 80,000 Christians. Um, so if you imagine that you had been born in North Korea and Jesus had pursued you in the way he has and you have surrendered to Jesus, you will likely be one of those 80,000 people in prison right now, having complete restriction and limitation on your freedom and yet still the invitation to love and to follow Jesus in that setting. While Hayley was here, she'd asked for the opportunity to go and visit Hanover Chapel, which is a little chapel in Abergavenny in Wales. And it's the chapel that, uh, back in 1863, sent Robert Germain Thomas as a missionary to China firstly, and subsequently as a missionary to North Korea. And uh, she desperately wanted to go there because um, he had brought the gospel to North Korea. Uh, Robert Germain Thomas, at the age of 24, he felt this call to go to, to China and um, with a heart for, for Korea. And one day he was on a boat trip um, up the river towards Pyongyang, which is the capital of North Korea. Bibles in hand. He'd been on that journey before and had been attacked and abused. But once again, he took that journey, a bit like Paul in Acts, that he went back to the places um, where people had beaten him with an inch of his life. And the reason he took that journey on the Pyongyang River is because he just desired that people would come to know the Jesus that he'd known. Once again, his boat was, was attacked, the boat was set on fire. And history records and, and testimonies record that he was taken um, to the shore and with Bibles in hand. And his executioner killed him on the shore. And he gave a Bible to his executioner before he was killed. Those Bibles were then grabbed by those who were uh, watching on, seeing his execution, and taken back to their homes. Then subsequently they were required by the authorities that all of those be brought back because they were contraband. But one man, he kept the Bible and he took the sheets of the Bible and he wallpapered his house uh, with the sheets of this Bible. And many people went into his home and, and read those sheets of the Bible and came to faith as a result of that. 
Pak Yong-sik was the guy who put the words upon his house. And his heart for Jesus was commendable. Jermaine Thomas's confidence in the gospel, his courage to share Jesus, his compassion for people's salvation was what motivated him to go to such extent. So walking into Hanover Chapel in Abergavenny in Wales, as soon as we stepped in there, hey, we were just, just dissolved into tears, just wept. And, uh, and as she wept, I felt just really deeply just challenged, really. That the reason that she wept was because she was so conscious of the value of the gospel of Jesus Christ that had transformed her life and strengthened her even in prison was a result of this young man's sacrifice, martyred at the age of 27. And I don't know about you listening to that story, but you know, I found watching Hayley weep just so beautiful, so humbling, so compelling, but also really deeply convicting, provoking me to reflect and to consider whether I hold the gospel in such esteem, or whether I have become a little bit beleaguered in the joy of my salvation and lost the value of that pearl of great price, whether I've become a little bit more restrained in my sharing of the gospel with other people because of fear of rejection, and whether I've become a little bit more self-conscious rather than compassionate for the salvation of others. Once Haywu had recovered herself, she was invited by the pastor to, to step up into the pulpit. It was a bit grander than this, I have to say, guys. It was uh, up a few steps, surrounded with um, just lovely stained glass windows in the background, you know. So if I come here again, I'm expecting a good one. But she, she stood there in this just big Bible out on the lectern. She began to weep, and she wept as she cried, and she prayed for Wales, and she prayed for a fresh move of God in Wales. Because from Wales, the gospel came to North Korea. But also in 1907, a revival was sparked in Pyongyang in North Korea as a result of the Welsh revival that saw Pyongyang being called the Jerusalem of the East. Such was the move of God that affected the whole of Southeast Asia. And so she was praying, God, would you again do in Wales what you did back in 1904? Would you do again in North Korea what you did in 1907? And she prayed for the, across the UK, weeping over our nation and for a fresh move of God. It's hard sometimes just to, um, to connect with the reality of the persecuted church, but we're not talking about an objective, the persecuted church. We're talking about people just like us, seeking to follow Jesus just like us, but facing restriction and persecution because of that. Got a short video just to play, just to give you a bit more of a sense of what it is like for Christians in North Korea and some of the challenges of sharing the gospel in that context. So cue the video. Lord Jesus, we know that the prayers offered in this place are powerful and effective. So we just commend them to you, Lord. So Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy, have mercy. Amen. I don't know about your journey here this morning, whether you checked the lie of the land before you left your home, whether you looked in the rear mirror to check that you weren't being followed, or you kind of did a certain journey on your way to church just to kind of throw anybody off, off the site. Um, I don't know what your thought would be if there was a spy in the room here who was here to report on you, and as a result of their report, you might lose all your freedoms. That is the reality for Christians around the world, and it's quite challenging. 
Um, anybody here's birthday is between uh, January and March? Can you just stand up for a minute? Okay, so statistically, about one-seventh of the UK's birthday is between January and March. Obviously, statistics are dependent on different environments. And the reality is around the church, one-seventh of the global body faces persecution. So if you imagine all of those around the room who are standing, having come today, having been persecuted this week, maybe lost their job, maybe if you're at school, put at the back of the class so that you can't access the education so that your opportunities are diminished. Maybe a member of your family has been abducted this week. Maybe you've been violently assaulted because of your faith. Maybe you've had your home, you've arrived back at your home and the doors have been barred up and it's, you've been dispossessed. Just imagine the stories that you'd be telling and those who are sitting down that you'd be hearing. Think about how would you respond to this, these members of your family having suffered in that way. Thanks for standing up. They're just realities that, that draw home some of the scenarios for us. A colleague of mine a few years ago um, had the privilege of going to India. Uh, India is a place where there's, there's rising levels of persecution, um, mostly because of Hindu nationalism, and it's not just targeted against Christians, it's against Muslims and Sikhs as well. Uh, what we do as a charity, we seek to strengthen Christians to be the hands and feet in Jesus in their situation. So the local church in India should be advocating and speaking up also for the freedoms of Muslims and Sikhs because that is about what it is to be Jesus-centered people, that we're salt and light and, and compassion to all people. But we specifically advocate for the suffering Christians so that they can be that. Uh, and there's a, about 60 churches have been destroyed in the last couple of weeks in, in Manipur in India. But a colleague of mine went there a few years ago, and uh, she went to, to meet with some church leaders. And she had to get up early in the morning and was taking a bit of a circuitous route to make sure that she wasn't being followed. Um, and then she arrived at, at this building in the middle of nowhere. And as she walked into this building, there was a couple of hundred people that were already there eagerly waiting. She found out that those couple of hundred people, some of them had traveled up to two days on foot in order to be there. And, uh, and she was delighted at the opportunity to meet these Christians from across India uh, and was desiring to hear from them just the stories of what they'd gone through, the challenges they'd faced. And they said, no, no, we're not here to tell you about our story. We're here to hear from you. What's God doing in England and how can we pray for you? And she was totally taken aback by that question <clears throat> that they had traveled two days to come to a place to hear about England and how they could pray. And the reason is, a bit like Hey Wu with Robert Germain Thomas, there's this value for the way the gospel that has saved them eternally has come from. And she took a short video, and sadly I can't show you for security reasons, around the room. And uh, on this video you had these men and these women just weeping before God on their hands and knees that God would move across the UK, that God would move in, in places like this. And uh, again, I don't know about you, but a bit like Hey Wu, just being moved to tears. When I watched that video, I was broken just by their compassion and their intercession that God would do something. And it really made me think, am I a little bit blind to the reality of the gospel? Am I a little bit blind to reality of the freedoms I have? Am I a little bit blind to the story? 
I just want to share just a few <coughs> Bible verses. And one, since I feel a little bit like I might be teaching grandma to suck eggs, because coming into this space and just seeing the way you pray, talking to Simon, and just hearing your commitment as a body of Christ to be praying regularly, it's a real honor to, to be with you. But I think, you know, we can always sharpen one another, can't we? Uh, as iron sharpens iron. So I want to just share a few things around um, prayer. We read in the Gospels how Jesus went into the temple. And he went into the temple, this place that is intended to be the meeting place between humanity and God. And he found it to be a place that was uh, just confused with lots of other things going on. The purpose of this meeting place had become compromised and distracted and distorted by so many things. And we know the story well in Luke 19:46. Jesus, my house will be a house of prayer, referencing Isaiah 56. And he cleanses the temple. He casts out all of those things that have impeded the purpose of the temple, which was to be a house of prayer for all nations, a place of intercession, a place of mediation for the purpose of God across the earth. And the, the whole picture of, of, the, um, of the temple and this you know, temple being a house of prayer all nations was, was patterned on Moses' um, encounter on Sinai with God, where God had given him a, a view of how things were in, in heaven. And we read just how Moses was instructed, make sure you do everything after the pattern that you've seen. And we read in, in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that, um, that Moses um, built the temple on the, or set the design for it on the basis of what he'd seen in heaven. It was a shadow and it was a reflection of something. And within that picture, there was all of this um, clarity of purpose over the role of the priest. And the priest would kind of come in to the temple wearing all this gear. One of the things that the priest wore was an, was an ephod. And on this ephod, there were the 12 tribes of Israel were kind of listed on this ephod. And, and the point of that was every time the priest came into Holy Spirit, he, he bore with him just the tribes of Israel. It's like that was an act of intercession, bringing into the presence of God, the people of God. And uh, that's, that's the point of prayer. Prayer is about bringing into the presence of God, the people of God, representing before God, the people of God. And, uh, and so in this throne room, in this kind of representation, this was a place, this temple was a place where people would come and meet with God, that they would be transformed in that encounter. We read in Hebrews 7.25, it says that Jesus always lives to intercede. In Romans 8.34, he, Jesus, is at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us. And we see this picture that the priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year, but Jesus is forever before the Father at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. So when we're here today praying, we know that Jesus is right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. I don't know about for you, but that adds value to my sense and my estimation of the power of my prayers, knowing that right now Jesus, who is the intercessor, he carries us, not just on an ephod, but on the palms of his hand, before the Father, at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, that we would live in this place of perpetual encounter with the presence of God and the power of God. And yet we are invited into that intercession that Jesus carries, that when we come into the presence of God, that we are carrying the nations. That's why Jesus said, my house should be a house of prayer, for all nations. So the temple was established to realize the outcome and the purpose of connecting 
the earth and heaven, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, he says, pray like this. You know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is teaching them that in their prayers, what they are doing is they are bringing a connection between the purposes of God in heaven with what is going on in the earth. And the temple in the Old Testament was intended to be an anchor point for the purposes of God to be released upon the earth. An anchor point for the authority of God to be released upon the earth. A place of mediation between the purposes of God. And so Jesus comes in to the temple and he sees that it has been totally compromised in its purpose. And as a result of that compromise, you know, Israel is not in a good place. They've been displaced really from their identity for more than 500 years. The word of God is rare in that time. And Jesus goes to the temple, this place that should be a place of habitation and facilitation for encountering God. And he cleanses it because it's become just so disconnected from the purpose. But as Jesus is cleansing the temple, he also points to a new temple that will be established in the hearts of everyone who responds to and receives the truth and life that Jesus offers. And those who receive this gift and respond to this invitation, they will become the house of God. They will become a dwelling place of the presence of God. They will be a place of intercession and intervention for the kingdom of God and here on earth. And the glorious truth is that you and I are that temple. And sometimes for us to realize the value of our identity as the temple of God. We have to understand something of the principle of the temple in the Old Testament and understand it was once a year the high priest would go in. Jesus lives forever in the presence of God and we, through him, live perpetually in a place of authority at the right hand of the Father. In, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, I think you've got the verse on here, it says, um, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you 1 Corinthians 6, 19, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God? And Paul is writing to the Corinthians because they've become compromised in their context and their culture. And he's reminding them, do you not know who you are? Do you not know whose you are? And challenging them to not live compromised to their culture, but to recognize that they are the place of habitation for the living God. They are a place of intercession for the world, for the transformation of the world. Peter writing a letter to Christians, if you read 1 Peter, in every chapter there's, uh, there's stories of the suffering, the physical suffering of persecution of the early church community. And he writes in Peter to them, he says, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So Peter again is trying to express to this um, early Christian community a confidence and an understanding of their identity that they are a spiritual house. They are the temple of the Holy Spirit. They are the place of God's habitation. And it's, he's challenging on that so that they live differently. So that they understand their identity because we will generally live up to our estimation of who we are. And so Peter and Paul are writing and trying to encourage the Christian community to understand who they are. Samuel challenges um, Saul back in uh, 1 Samuel 15. He says to, to Saul, though you were small in God's eyes, sorry, though you were small in your own eyes, pointing to his lack of self-esteem, 
Did not God give you a call and a purpose? And so he's saying, so you lived according to your human esteem rather than God's esteem of you. And what the writers in the New Testament are trying to do is they are challenging and provoking the church not to live at the level of their culture, but to live in the inheritance of their calling. And so when we're talking about prayer and being a house of prayer for all nations, it's not primarily an activity that we will gather once in a while to do. It's primarily an identity. It's primarily a place of intimacy and a place of relationship. So wherever you are, you carry the presence of God. And therefore, wherever you are, you have the power to intercede, to mediate, to stand in the gap for the purposes of God to break out. And wherever we are, we can be doing that for the church globally as well. And one of the things that the enemy will oppose more than anything is prayer, because he knows that prayer is powerful and effective for the tearing down of strongholds and for the establishment of the kingdom. So if you look all across church history, that where the church has been most persecuted is in order to inhibit prayer. At the moment, uh, probably Nigeria and Nigerian diaspora church are leading prayer all across the world. But in Nigeria, every day, 14 Christians are being killed for their faith. 14 every day. And I've been to Nigeria, and I've met men and women who've suffered the loss of partners, loss of children. I've had a woman pull her skirt and show me four bullet wounds in her leg where she'd been shot. I've met with 15, 16-year-old girls who've got two children, having been abducted by Boko Haram and forced into uh, forced marriage and suffered as a result of that. The enemy targets prayer and tries to undermine and abort the response of the church to pray. And yet we have freedom, but we've got to live up to the estimation of God rather than any other estimation. 2 Timothy 2.21, Paul writes to Timothy, who's a young man, he's probably a teenager, encouraging him in his faith, and he says, if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And he's challenged Timothy, don't give what God has set apart. Don't give it back. What has been set apart for noble purposes, don't give over to ignoble purposes. And God's word and our history, they highlight that we have to doggedly and determinedly set our intention to be alert, to be attentive, to be available to God as we so easily get distracted and diverted to lesser things. And there's so many lesser things that we get distracted on. We spend so much time pursuing security in the things of the world rather than the things of the kingdom. And sometimes when you meet people that have lost everything for Christ but are so rich in faith, it's really compelling. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of being in Iraq and met a guy called Basil of Baghdad. That was actually his name. Um, And he was a fairly successful businessman and, and a Christian. And one day he got back from work and there was an envelope on his doorstep uh, with a single bullet in it with a note saying you have 24 hours uh, to leave. And the threat of that envelope meant that he knew that him and his family weren't safe. Al-Qaeda were present at that time. So he left with his family and they moved to, um, uh, to uh, Mosul in the Nineveh Plains. 
and uh, reset up business. They had left everything behind and had kind of lost everything. And, uh, and after being in, in Mosul for um, four years, there was a phone call. And it was that ISIS were about 10 minutes um, from Mosul. And therefore, they had about 10 minutes to, to get out. So they had a car, so 10 minutes to grab whatever they could to shove in that car, knowing that the likelihood was that everything else would be um, taken or destroyed. And then he arrived in, in Erbil, where I met him in Erbil, and, and he'd once again um, set up a little business. He was at this point a shopkeeper, so completely like stepped down in terms of being professionally kind of uh, wealthy um, to a completely different role. Um, and yet he just had a smile on his face, you know, all the time. And, uh, and we talked about forgiveness, and I said to him, how, how have you been able to forgive, you know, after all that's happened? And it's all, it's like my question wasn't landing for him. He didn't quite know how to compute the question, because he's like, well, he said, Jesus told me to forgive, and Jesus has forgiven me, and it was just like, it was a no-brainer, you know. What else matters? Jesus says forgive, therefore I forgive. And for me, I suppose I was processing maybe a more of a Western kind of emotionalism, which was like, yeah, but what, what about all the feelings in the midst of it? And it's not that all the feelings are, are not right or not real, but it's just saying fundamentally you have, you have a choice. I've been forgiven so much more than I could ever forgive. I'm not going to allow my heart to be captured. And so again, just the challenge of meeting people who've lost so much. Um, next picture, I think. Um, right down here, St. Hormer's Monastery in the bottom right. Uh, this here, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, in the background here is the Nineveh Plains where Isis was, and this monastery is right on the edge of the Nineveh Plains. And, and they slightly reordered the Beatitudes as you walk down this little um, channel. And this is the first statement, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there's this statement really at the heart of this that even if we face persecution, we're blessed because actually what is anchored in our hearts is of eternal value. If we lose everything, we can't lose that. But St. Hormer's monastery is just in the cliff face, just behind this. It's right up in the cliff face. And I and, um, had the privilege of going in and this uh, father took us in and he took us into the inner catacombs um, inside this cliff face. It was probably a, maybe a 200 meter kind of walk inside. So we found ourselves in this very, very inner cell in the middle of this kind of hillside. It was absolutely spectacular, um, but lots of kind of head ducking. And we, and we came into this um, little kind of uh, room right in the center, and it had just a, a, a little sill, um, which had a, a cross engraved um, in the wall. And it had a, just a, a, an iron loop in the ceiling. And the father explained to us that uh, Father Hormus, who set up the monastery unintentionally in the seventh century, he just took himself aside uh, to pray and to devote himself to prayer. And this gathering of people began to gather who were you know, moved to prayer. And, uh, and I said, what's, what's the, um, the loop in the ceiling for? And he said, ah, oh, well, Father Hormus used to come here to pray and he felt that God had called him to pray over the nations. And he felt deeply convicted that this was his responsibility. So he used to attach the locks of his hair to a chain to the loop in the ceiling. So if he nodded asleep whilst praying, he'd pull his hair and it'd wake him up again to be attentive to it. And uh, sometimes we can talk about um, prayer, you know, that we as evangelicals are almost the masters of prayer. But here was a man, you know, in the seventh century who understood that his identity was to be 
a house of prayer for all nations because the Spirit of God dwelt in him and that Spirit of God has authority to transform the world around us. So I'm not advocating tiny locks to things, but, but it's a provoking principle, isn't it? How much do we realize and esteem the value of call, God's call on us and, and how do we kind of lean into that? So I just want you just for, for two minutes... Um, just uh, on your own if you prefer more of a personal processor or with the person next to you, just reflect on what is it that inhibits your faithfulness to prayer? Okay, so just with the person next to you on your own, what inhibits your faithfulness to practice prayer? I'm not going to ask for any responses, don't worry. Just want you to reflect on it a little bit. Okay. <clears throat> You'll have to um, carry on your reveries maybe a little bit later and the reason I ask the question is it's, it's so easy to hear a talk but we've always got to ask a question well so what so, so what are we going to do with the things that we've kind of reflected on this morning so what are we going to do with those scriptures that compel us to a vision of ourself that is maybe different uh, to the way in which we live really it, uh, our behaviours tell us what our beliefs are in reality we can have principles but our behaviours tell us what we believe so if your behavior is not that you are consistently praying. Don't beat yourself up. That serves no purpose for anybody, least of all you. But if you find that your behavior is not that you understand and are practicing being a house of prayer for all nations, then that reveals to you that there's something not quite perfected in your beliefs. So what, from this morning, so, so what I want to challenge you is if you reflect on your behaviors and they tell you your value in relation to prayer, I want to encourage you to do something about that. I want to encourage you to press into God's word. I want to encourage you to talk to each other and say, I'm absolutely signed off on the principle that prayer is important and it's something we should be doing as a Christian. But actually, in practical reality, I find that really difficult. Or I find it really easy to do with people, but I find it really difficult to do on my own. Or I find it really easy to do on my own, but really difficult to do with people. We're on different ends of that spectrum. And I think the key thing is sometimes we've got to just be practical and say, so what do I do about that? How do I move from where I am now to something a little bit deeper? Otherwise, a talk is just a talk, and it's, it's largely irrelevant. So I really want to provoke you and encourage you and myself to re-consecrate ourselves to the sacred call to be a house of prayer for all nations. Because if Jesus came and cleansed the table so that... The temple was once again a house of prayer for all nations. And if we are a temple, then what is Jesus wanting to do? He wants to cleanse us of every distraction so that we are a house of prayer for all nations, a place of mediation and intercession for the kingdom of God to come on earth. And I think if we as the global church, connected together as one church, really understood the mantle of prayer and we behaved according to that mantle rather than just believed in relation to it, I think we'd see things change very significantly because we have a nuclear arsenal in prayer that the enemy has not got any ability to deal with. Whereas if we are not engaged with that, then the enemy has a degree of power. So I want to encourage you firstly to re-consecrate yourself to this and think practically what that looks like. For me personally, I found being in communion with and connected with our persecuted family has, has been both an inspiration to me and a provocation to pray and I'd encourage you today if you're not already connected and in communion with the most persecuted to get connected for their sake and for yours 
and I say for their second and yours, and I think probably in reality, I think I've probably benefited more from my communion with the most persecuted than I could bring benefit to because there's a provocation, there's a, a reality check that comes in when you meet with people who literally have lost everything for Jesus and who are risking their lives for him. So I really want to encourage you to do that. If, if Open Doors can help practically with that, then uh, there's a card uh, on your seat that Richard very kindly gave out. Just want to encourage you just to, to fill that out and, and we will then resource you or help you to be able to stand with and pray the most persecuted. Um, I was chatting to my mum a couple weeks ago and, and she's, been, she's really provoked when she watches the news and with all of the stuff in Ukraine over the last 466 days, you know, she's taken note of individual stories and written them down and she's been praying into them each day. And then all that's gone on with the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, she's been praying for individual people and then as things come on and, and she just wept to me the other day and said, sometimes it's overwhelming, I don't know how to carry it all. And so I, I get the world is quite an overwhelming place and we don't have to carry it all on our shoulders. Christ is the one who's at the right hand of the Father interceding. But the, but the, the yoke of intercession, the mantle of intercession, we come and we carry alongside with Jesus. It's his mantle, it's his yoke, but we just step under it at different times. Uh, one of the ways we'll resource is we have a, a prayer diary which will give you just a prayer to pray each day, which will take you literally 30 seconds. It can be that simple, but those prayers are powerful and effective. There's videos that will just inspire you to pray, like the video of Rebecca. So if we can help your connection, please fill out that card and leave it at the back or give it to me, and you can choose how you'd like to be communicated with. And again, this connection point, it's not just pragmatic, it's about a participation in grace. Paul uh, from in prison writes to the Philippians and talks about how they have participated with him in grace both in his imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. And then he goes on to write about how he's been amazed at how they have become more emboldened in their faith because of his imprisonment. And I think that's a lovely picture that when we're talking about um, standing and partnering with our persecuted family, it is as a participation in grace. We're part of one church, one body of which Christ is the head. But as we participate, participate with one another, grace flows in all directions. So I really want to encourage you um, to do that. We're going to just um, finish off with um, communion. And so we're just going to pass some grapes around from the back to the front down the aisles. Take a grape. Um, you may be peckish. Don't be tempted to eat it just yet. It won't fill your hunger anyway. Um, so just take your grape. And we're going to take communion together. And the reason we're using grapes is there's lots of places around the world where you have to be a little bit kind of careful over your expression of faith in order to not unnecessarily and unhelpfully draw attention. Um, Afghanistan uh, is a place that was on many of our, in many of our thoughts nearly two years ago when the, the Taliban um, came in and took control. Um, since that point, the church has been pushed further and further underground. Lots of Christians have fled. And, and the way that the church meets in Afghanistan is in secret. And the way that they celebrate communion is with a grape because you can eat a grape in a group of people and people just think there's some people eating grapes. But when they take a grape, the grape is a symbol of the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, that when they bite into the grape and they feel the flesh of the grape, it's a reminder of Jesus' body that was broken for them. And when the juice of the grape just trickles down their throat, they're reminded of the blood of Jesus that was shed for them. And so as we take communion today with these grapes, I want us just to have a moment where we... And not just taking it as a way of 
recognizing just the sign and the symbol of grace that it is and a representation of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But why don't you also to recognize it in and through communion that we, we enter into, we participate in the one body of Christ. And that one body includes our brothers and sisters in Nigeria and our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and our brothers and sisters in India and our brothers and sisters in North Korea and all the places around the world. So as we're coming to communion, we're receiving the grace of God, but we're also participating in the grace that unites us as one family under heaven. Whether we could just have just two movements of prayer. One, um, just in twos, maybe just to pray for the person next to you and just to, to bless them this week in being set apart for the purpose of God and being consecrated to be a house of prayer. Maybe you could just bless the person next to you Let's just do that for a minute or two, and then it'd be great, again, just to pray for the church around the world um, in this moment. So just pray the person next to you for a moment. Just bless them as they live out in a house of prayer for all nations this week. I just wonder whether we could respond as one body in praying for the nations. Uh, I've mentioned a few nations, say, from North Korea, India, Afghanistan, Iraq, Maybe you'd like to just to pray for one of those nations and pray as Jesus taught us to pray, which is that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done in that setting. So maybe we could just raise our voice for a minute and just intercede and then I'll hand back over to you guys to pick up. So.